You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John chapter 6. Gospel of John chapter 6. And let me uh, provide you with a little context regarding where we are to refresh your memory. Uh, The focus of this chapter is Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. There are 5,000 men present, but when you include women and children, we could be looking at at upwards of 15,000, 20,000 people. Uh, These people had, in desperation, sought Jesus out. And Jesus, when he saw them, had compassion on them, and he healed their sick and taught them about the kingdom of God. And as the day wore on, Jesus' disciples came to the uneasy realization that there was no food for the crowd. Uh, But Jesus, through his divine power, was able to take five pieces of bread, two little fish, multiply that food to the extent that all 15,000, 20,000 people ate and were satisfied. And as a matter of fact, there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus satisfied their hunger and even provided more than enough. And this miracle of Jesus is one of several signs throughout the Gospel of John. Up to this point, John has has already recorded a number of signs, including Jesus turning water into wine in John chapter 2, or the healing of the lame man in chapter 5. And the purpose of Jesus performing these signs is not simply Jesus flexing his divine muscles. He's not just doing tricks to wow or amuse or dazzle anyone. These are signs. And in John's gospel, a sign isn't meant to draw attention to itself for its own sake, but is meant to communicate something beyond itself about Jesus. And what we're going to see in a moment is that it is quite possible to see the sign and yet totally miss the significance, the significance of it. We're going to see in this chapter uh, that with even Jesus telling the crowd the meaning of the sign, almost everyone is going to miss it. And therefore, since it is so easy to miss the point of this sign, after we read the Scriptures together, I want you to pray with me earnestly that you would hear what Jesus says, that you would see the sign, you would understand the sign, that you would believe the sign. So, with that said, if you will please stand with me now in honor of the reading of the words of our God... And we're going to start in um, verse 14 and read on down through verse 40. Now, now verse 14 records the initial reaction of the people after they were fed. Word of God says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not 
entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is nourishment for our souls. Father, I pray this morning that we would be fed by you and that we would be satisfied. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So John chapter 6 marks, uh, is one of the most important chapters in the life of Jesus because it marks a major turning point in his ministry. The chapter begins with what is probably his biggest crowd, his biggest and most enthusiastic crowd ever. Uh, the, the largest crowd that he has seen in his entire ministry. We've got 15, 20,000 people ready to crown Jesus as their king. But by the time the chapter is over, and we'll, we'll finish the rest of the chapter next week, by the time the chapter is over, we are told not only that many of his followers, thousands of them, turn away and reject him, refusing to walk with him, But we discover that even someone in his inner circle, one of the twelve, is in reality a traitor. Indeed, he's a devil, Jesus will say. And this mass rejection of Jesus sets in motion the inevitable march of Jesus and his disciples towards Jerusalem and the cross where he will face the rejection of men in its fullness. Of course, we should not be shocked by this. 
From the very beginning of the book, as early as the first chapter, John tips his hand, and he shows you where all this is going. He says in John chapter 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Chapter 6 is not the darkest moment in the gospel of John. That's coming. But it is the beginning of the setting of the sun, so to speak. And yet, ironically, in a chapter that contains many things that are sad and disappointing, this chapter also contains much light, uh, much power, much hope for all who have eyes to see and ears to hear. In our scripture today, I'd like us to consider three big themes in Jesus' teaching. And the first one is that seeking Jesus is not enough to receive life. Seeking Jesus is not enough to receive life. Some of you are like, whoa, whoa, Deemer, what are you talking about here? That almost sounds, that sounds heretical. You, you, you say I'm not supposed to, to seek Jesus? Hang with me, and, uh, and hopefully you'll get me on this one. Look again at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now, our initial reaction to the idea of of people seeking Jesus would be, well, that's a good thing. We want people seeking Jesus, right? We want our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers seeking Jesus. But more than that, we want them to be excited and enthusiastic about Jesus, don't we? We, we don't just want people to be kind of ho-hum and nonchalant about Jesus. We want people going hard after Him. And that's exactly what these people in John chapter 6 are doing, aren't they? They're, they are diligently seeking Jesus. They are perplexed about Jesus' location. He he was there with them on one side of the lake, and the next day, he's gone. They know his disciples got on a boat and went to the other side, and they know that Jesus didn't get on the boat with them. But, But they're not deterred by this. They are seeking him diligently. They are getting into boats probably hiring water taxis, hitching rides. The the lake isn't going to stop them. Let's remember, these people were in a frenzy for Jesus less than 24 hours ago. He's like a a rock star to them, even more than that. Verse 15 says they were going to take him by force and make him king. Isn't that some devotion to Jesus? Don't you wish there were more people today who are eager to make Jesus king of their lives? Aren't you impressed with these people? Maybe you are, but Jesus isn't. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. What Jesus is saying is that you may have witnessed a sign, but you didn't really see what the sign was pointing to, which was him. Instead, They are fixated on food, on the loaves. And so now the truth is revealed as to why they are seeking Jesus, why they are excited about Jesus. They are not seeking Jesus for Jesus. 
They are seeking Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. They want more free bread. They want full bellies. You may think, well, that's pretty shallow. Seriously? They're all bent out of shape about free, free bread? But let's remember, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago. We, we take bread and food in general for granted in our Western modern world. Acquiring bread for us requires a quick trip to the store and we're done. But the, the preparing of food in the ancient world was m- a much more laborious process. 80% of their time and energy and labor and investment went towards just getting a meal. Almost everyone would have lived literally hand to mouth. You've got bread, you live. If not, you won't. What Jesus did for the people in that miraculous provision for them, uh, well, in our day and age, it would be akin to winning the lottery. If you were a first century person who never had to worry about bread again, you'd be set for life. But there's more than their simple desire For food, verse 15 says they wanted Jesus to be their king. Now, this focus on kingship is not coming out of nowhere. It's not coming out of a vacuum. The Jewish people knew that the Scriptures promised them a Messiah, a king sent from God, and they had very particular expectations regarding what this king would be and do when he would come. They had expectations of a Messiah coming and being a general a military leader, someone who was going to come and rescue Israel from Roman occupation and restore political freedom and independence. And if you've got a guy on the scene, he's got supernatural powers. He can heal people. And he can feed people. And he can raise people from the dead. You've got yourself the perfect figure to lead a Jewish revolt. You lose some soldiers, he can raise them from the dead. You don't have to carry provisions with you on the march. He'll make food for you. Is it any wonder why these people are excited and enthusiastic and they are seeking Jesus? But Jesus is not impressed by this at all. In verse 15, they seek Jesus. They they seek to make him a king And notice Jesus' response. He withdraws, text says. They want Jesus, but he wants nothing to do with them. And then in verse 25, they find him, and again, he's not pleased. And friends, what we're learning here is that it is not merely enough to seek Jesus. We learn that your motive for coming to Jesus matters. We learn that receiving And embracing why Jesus came into the world matters. That Jesus expects us to receive him on his terms, submitting to his agenda, not the other way around. Look at Jesus' challenge to them in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now, now this is fascinating because Jesus talks about eternal life. And who is the one that's offering eternal life? What's the title that Jesus gives himself? The Son of Man. And what would, that, that title, the Son of Man, would immediately evoke in the minds of the crowd Daniel chapter 7. And what do we see in Daniel chapter 7? The Son of Man. And how is the Son of Man described in Daniel 7? As a king. 
not just king of Israel, but, but a king whose scope is global, a king who rules everything, who has ultimate power and authority and dominion. The multitudes want Jesus to be king. Jesus withdraws from them, but then he comes back the next day and says, I'm the king. I'm the son of man. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is signaling to the crowd that he is not rejecting the notion of him being king. He instead is rejecting their concept of what the king is and what he should be doing right now. The agenda of the people for Jesus is revolt, insurrection, and free bread. Jesus' agenda is much bigger than that. It's the giving of eternal life to spiritually dead people. That's priority one on the king's agenda in this moment. Yes, I'm the king. Yes, I'm the son of man. I will rule the world and set up my global kingdom. But you can't even participate in that until you receive eternal life. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom, John chapter 3. Eternal life is what you need more than anything else. So, do not work for the food that perishes. Bread perishes. Food spoils. Do not spend your life chasing after things that will not last. that, That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about your physical needs. He does. I mean, remember, Jesus spent all day prior meeting physical needs. Nevertheless, Jesus says to a people that have been diligently searching for him and seeking him, do not work for the food that perishes. Do not seek me, no matter how intently, no matter how earnestly, no matter how passionately, if the reason you are seeking me is merely for material gain, for temporal blessings. For things that perish. Don't use me as a means to an end. I'm not some kind of genie in a bottle that if you find me, you get free wishes and I'll slavishly give you whatever you want. Jesus here is confronting the worldliness of the people. Jesus cares about physical needs. Jesus wants you to care about physical needs. Elsewhere, he teaches us to pray, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. But Jesus wants the crowd to realize that their lives should not revolve around lesser things. They should not bank their hopes for life and for satisfaction on loaves of bread or on physical healing or on the dream of political independence from Rome. The people thought, as long as I get free bread from Jesus from now on, it'll be okay. If Jesus could just heal me of this disease, then I'll really be happy. If Jesus will be our political king and fight our battles and kick the Romans out of Israel, then all will be good. I wonder about you today. Is Jesus merely a means to an end for you? Are you seeking him not for his sake, but because of something else that you can get out of it? Is there something that you value and treasure more than Jesus? And is Jesus' main function to you simply that he might be able to get you the thing that you want? And what will happen? What will you do with Jesus if you ask him for something and he says no? Then what? That's a very important question that I think all of us need to wrestle with. 
You know, that's essentially what he's telling the crowd here. He's telling them no. They want more bread. But Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. There there are two kinds of food here. The, The food that endures to eternal life, on the one hand, and the food that perishes. And the implication is that if you're chasing after the food that perishes, if that's your main goal, even if you're using Jesus to get it, you won't have eternal life. Instead, it'll lead to death. Jesus says, I have something to give you that is way better than what you're asking me for. I have food that endures to eternal life, and that is the food you need to spend your time and your energy and your passions on. So, seeking Jesus is not enough to receive life. Secondly, you must believe in Jesus to receive life. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, Jesus, you're talking about eternal life. You've got food that's better than that delicious stuff that you gave us yesterday that we need to work for that. Fine. Tell us what we need to do to get that food and we'll do it. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. (laughs) That you don't work. (laughs) That's essentially what he's saying. This is the work of God, that you believe in him in whom he has sent. Now that's an interesting response. Because Jesus' statement implies that these people weren't believing. They were excited about Jesus. They wanted him to be their king. They gave the appearance of believing. They're all in for Jesus. But they have not yet really believed. And what's the proof of that? The proof of that is that by the time you get to the end of the chapter, they're all out of there. They're gone. They leave Jesus and don't want to follow him anymore because he won't do for them what they want him to do. He won't give them bread. He won't be their political military leader and they abandon him. They weren't putting their hope in Jesus. They were putting their hope solely in what Jesus could do for them. That's symptomatic of unbelief. And then this unbelief rears his ugly head big time in verse 30. (laughs) So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? (sighs) The gall (laughs) of this question What sign are you going to do, Jesus? you got to give us a sign, and then we'll believe. Is anybody else catching the, the irony of this question? Jesus just gave them a sign yesterday. The reason they are not fainting with hunger right now is because the day before they had stuffed themselves full of the bread that Jesus gave them. Bread that he created, I might add, out of thin air. That's a sign. You'd think that would be enough, but it's not. They want another sign. Oh, and guess what sign they want? Verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, that statement goes back to the Old Testament, of course, when Moses had led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and they were wandering in the wilderness, and God miraculously provided the people with bread from heaven to sustain them for 40 years, 40 years of nonstop bread. So this crowd looks Jesus in the eye and says, hey, you don't have to do anything different than you did yesterday, Jesus. Just give us more of that bread. 
Our fathers ate the manna that Moses gave them. If you're the Messiah, if you're greater than Moses, then you should be able to do exactly the same thing, if not more. So, keep the bread coming, Jesus, and we'll keep on believing in you, Jesus. Their allegiance to Jesus is conditional. And so, every time Jesus steers the conversation into the spiritual realm, the people bring it back to the physical realm. They aren't really interested in eternal life. They are interested instead in their best life now. In free bread and healings and political dominion over their enemies. This is the first prosperity gospel megachurch. Right here in John chapter 6, 20,000 of them. They love Jesus and they have a wonderful plan for his life. What about you? What kind of relationship do you have with Jesus? Is it a strings-attached kind of relationship? Will you keep following Jesus as long as he does, you fill in the blanks, as long as he does X, Y, and Z for you, and if he doesn't do that, then you're gone? The people in John 6 essentially say, we'll be your followers, Jesus, and you'll be our king as long as you do exactly what we want. Now, if that's the attitude of the people, and if that's your attitude, my question for you is, who is really king in that arrangement? So this becomes a a, a tennis match, a verbal tennis match. The people hit the ball back to Jesus, trying to turn the conversation uh, into Jesus meeting their physical needs, and Jesus refuses to go along with it, and and he hits the ball back, and he turns it back to the spiritual. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread they really need is not an it, but a who. But the people still don't get it. And so guess what they do? They hit the ball back to Jesus trying to keep it in the physical realm. They say to him, Sir, give us this bread always. It really reminds you of the conversation Jesus had a few chapters before with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And she's, she's thinking physical water. She's thinking H2O. He's thinking living water that will satisfy the deepest needs of her soul. They're, they're, they're coming at it from two different... They're on two different levels here. This is a theme throughout the Gospel of John... Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again. He's talking spiritual stuff. Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? I'm old. How can I climb back into my mother's womb? This is constant disconnect between Jesus and the people. Give us this bread always. And finally, Jesus just lays it out there as clear as he can be in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I, it's me, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So now in this statement, Jesus is clarifying some things that he said earlier. Again, back in verse 27, Jesus compares two foods, a food that perishes and a food that endures to eternal life. And that food is superior to to the other food. And Jesus says that the superior food is me. So basically, there's Jesus... And there's everything else. 
You chase after anything else besides Jesus, and that won't lead to life. If if you use Jesus as a means to an end, like these people in John 6, that won't lead to eternal life. Jesus has come into the world not to be a means to your end, but to be the end. Jesus is telling the people, essentially, I did not come to give bread. I've come to be bread for you. Just like bread is a staple of your physical life and without food you die, so I am to be the staple of your spiritual life and without me you perish. That's the ultimate point of the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is seeing something that the crowd doesn't realize. They are so distracted by rumbling bellies and starry-eyed dreams of political revolution They don't realize that they have a need that runs much deeper than their need for dinner. Do you remember what Jesus' reaction was when he saw these crowds the day before? We talked about this two sermons ago. He saw the crowds and he was moved with compassion. And why was he moved with compassion? Gospel of Mark tells us, Mark chapter 6, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's metaphorical language having to do with the spiritual needs of the people. They are spiritually lost. They are spiritually starving. They are spiritually parched. Indeed, they are dead. They don't have eternal life. It means they're in a state of death. That's the condition of the whole world apart from Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that all who don't believe are already under a state of condemnation with an eternal death sentence on their heads due to their sins. The people don't understand why Jesus is there. They don't understand that if Jesus does what they want, if he becomes their king and gives in to their wishes, if he raises an army and leads a successful military campaign against Rome, if he restores national freedom to Israel, if he heals all of their diseases if he provides them with free bread for 80 years and their bellies are full and they are wealthy and prosperous, at the end of it all, they will drop dead and go to hell. That is the end result of working for food that perishes. Jesus says elsewhere, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? If Jesus is a means to an end, it will not work. It won't lead to life. If you try to make anything else bread, you'll find it to be a dead end. But once Jesus becomes the end, we receive what we ultimately need more than anything else. What Jesus offers in himself is something far superior than anything else that we could ask for, which is eternal life. The reason Jesus came was to bring deliverance from an oppression that was greater than Roman tyranny. He came to rescue people from bondage to sin and Satan and death. He came to die on a cross as a substitute for sinners. And because Jesus' death would satisfy the wrath of God towards those he died for, Jesus could confidently say in verse 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now, you may say, well, Deemer, that's not very practical. I'm glad I'm going to heaven, but I need help now. 
I need something now. I agree with you. And so does Jesus. Which is why the scriptures remind us that the eternal life that Jesus gives is not simply heaven in the future, but a deep satisfaction of the soul in the present. That's why Jesus says in verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When Jesus beckons us not to labor for food that perishes, when he challenges us to exalt him above all the other things that we might want, he's not being stingy. He's actually loving us because he knows that food, healing, houses, cars, earthly comforts, those things, as good as they might be, will not ultimately provide for us the deep and abiding satisfaction that our hearts crave. Those things will not still the hunger of our souls or quench the thirst in our spirits. To have lesser things at the center and not Jesus leads to a life of restless wandering and discontent. I'm reminded of Augustine, who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, who in his book, Confessions, was quite vulnerable and honest about his life of sexual immorality and thieving and his love of sin and entertainment. His life was one that sought satisfaction in everything but Jesus. And Augustine, upon reflecting on his old life of running after food that perishes, wrote this. He said, You stir man to take pleasures in praising you because you have made us for yourself. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Jesus knows this. And so the most loving thing he can do for the crowd is to withhold the bread, to withhold the food that perishes, to get the spotlight off of the bread and to get the spotlight onto himself so that some might see Christ for who he is, to turn away from perishable things and turn towards Christ and be satisfied in him. And some do get that at the end of the chapter, like the Apostle Peter, who says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? <laughs> there, is no, there is no other place. No other place, no other person, no other thing can give us what you can give us. We have nowhere to go. We're sticking with you, Jesus. You're the bread. So, seeking Jesus is not enough to receive life. You must believe in Jesus to receive life And finally, if you believe that life will be yours forever. It can be really frustrating to read this chapter, to read about the persistent unbelief of the people. Here you have hungry souls that need spiritual nourishment, and you have the bread of life standing right in front of them. And yet they refuse to trust Jesus. And you can even detect some frustration in the words of Jesus. He says in verse 36, But I said to you that, You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Is it not astonishing that after all of the miraculous healings and after the amazing things that Jesus has done, after creating food out of thin air for thousands, the people still resist Jesus' claims and they remain in a state of hard-hearted unbelief? Yet here we see an example of the utter depravity of man. All of us left to ourselves, do not have an appetite for the bread of life. We have a gag reflex to the bread of life. Left to ourselves, we are hostile to Jesus Christ. 
And if he can't be a means to our end, then we just reject him. And it could, it could make the reader of John wonder, well, is there any hope for anyone? And indeed, there is hope. And as always, the hope is found not in what we can do, but in what God does. Look at verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Despite the stubborn, sinful, hard-heartedness of man, Jesus gives us some hope. All is not lost. There is a people that the Father has promised to save. God the Father has set apart a people, and as a loving Father, He gives this people as a gift to Jesus. And what's very important to realize is that all of these people will come to Jesus. We aren't left to wonder, well, maybe some that God determined to save won't make it. Maybe some will refuse to come to Jesus. No, no, no. All the Father gives will come. Now, how does that work? If man is so sinful and rebellious, how can Jesus be so certain that all the Father gives him will actually come to him? Jesus actually gives you the answer in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we have here both a statement about the depravity of man and his bondage to sin to such an extent that he cannot come to Jesus in his own power. But on the positive side, we see that when God the Father moves upon the heart of a sinner, changing and transforming his affections and appetites to crave the bread of life, such a person does come to Jesus to have his hunger and his thirst satisfied by him. The power of God is stronger than the power of sin. And the reason you're here this morning as a Christian is because God conquered your heart and won you to himself. And praise God that he did. But it gets even better. Go back to verse 37. Here Jesus gives a beautiful word of assurance for all who come. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and check this out, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I wonder if there's someone in this room who is feeling stirred by God to come to Jesus, and and yet you're thinking, man, Deemer, I want to come. This sounds good. I want Jesus to satisfy my hunger and my thirst. I want to be forgiven, but you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know about the skeletons in my closets. If people in this room knew about my past, they would be horrified. And my response to you is that Jesus doesn't say whoever comes to me except for somebody who has done X, Y, and Z sin. He doesn't say whoever comes to me except for those who've really been really, really bad. He says whoever comes, whoever comes. The point is not what you have done, the point is, will you come? That's the most important thing in this moment. God says in Isaiah 55, come, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, this is free for those who come. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That sound familiar? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. 
Will you come to Jesus? Will you believe in Him? Will you demonstrate your belief through receiving Him as your King and your Master as opposed to trying to make Him into a mini-King that will serve you? Will you trust Him as your substitute in His death and His burial and His resurrection? Will you turn away from trying to earn your way to heaven through good works? Remember what Jesus said. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. That's all that's required. And if you answered yes to all those questions, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you are receiving Jesus this morning, I'd love to talk with you after the service, or you can talk to to Pastor Steve or another Christian friend who is here with you this morning. We would love to help you get started in your new life with Jesus, feasting on the bread of life. But this assurance from Jesus is not only a comfort for for the new believer, It's a comfort for all believers. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Uh, Some of you have perhaps struggled in your walk lately. Maybe you've fallen big time into sin. Maybe, Maybe you feel like all you do is fall flat on your face and you fail over and over and over and over and over again and you find yourself wondering, is God finally through with me? I've felt that before in my life. Is God finally through with me? Is he done? How many times do I have to fail before God gives up on me? Surely this is it. Surely I've crossed the line. You need to know this morning that Jesus' word is for you also. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So once you come to him, then that never applies to you. You'll never be cast out. If you've come to Jesus just now, or if you came to Jesus years ago, the promise to you is the same. You will not be cast out. And Jesus tells you why in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's good news. He says, I will lose nothing of all that has been given me. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to let you go. So the message for those who have been Christians for a long time is the same message. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Believe the gospel. And know that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse of all unrighteousness. Whether you are an unbeliever or a believer, whether you're a new Christian or have been one for decades, if you are hungry and aching in your soul, restless and wandering and discontent, the message for everyone in this room is the same. Come to Jesus. Today is the day. He will not cast you out. Come, eat, and be satisfied. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that everyone in this room would come to Jesus as the source of their soul's satisfaction. Father, there are many of us in this room that that, that we have done that, and and we have received you as Lord and and Savior. We've repented of our sins, and we've placed our trust in the hope of the gospel, but we, we still fight these old tendencies from our old life, to, to, to chase after the food that perishes, to try to find our satisfaction, our ultimate satisfaction in other things outside of you. Everybody in here is guilty of that, Father, but please forgive us of that. 
And Father, I pray that you would help us to help us to be the kind of people who will crave you more. Will you transform our spiritual taste buds all the more? We have, we have gotten a taste of you, Father. And yet we're still weaning ourselves off of the junk food of the world. And so we still need your help. We, we, still, we still need growth in this, in this area of seeing you as, as appealing and appetizing. So, Father, help us with that. And, Lord, I pray for, for those who may have come in this room this day not having life, spiritually starved and really in a state of death and condemnation. Father, I pray that they would walk out of this room free of condemnation because they have placed their hope in you and they have come to you to fulfill all of the, 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 the spiritual longings and desires that they have in their hearts. And I just thank you that you, uh, you are wonderful enough to, to offer this life in the first place. Uh, it would be it been very right for you to just leave us be and send us all to hell. And no one could have leveled any accusation uh, towards you of being unjust because that is, our, that is the punishment that we deserve. And yet, thank you, Father, that in addition to being a God of wrath and justice, a God who is angry with the wicked every day, yet at the same time, you are a God who is merciful and compassionate and loving beyond our wildest dreams and expectations. Help us to never take that for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.